science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. Welcome and aboard. Iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. In 2020, a man in India murdered his wife using the same weapon that Dr. Grimsby Roylott employed in a classic fictional detective story. What was that weapon? That's question number one. Question number two, bicycle helmets. We should all be wearing them. They're made of a hard outer shell and an inner impact absorbing foam. What are the two plastics used? So what is the and what is the plastic in the inner impact absorbing foam? Those are the today on the Dr. Joe Show. I direct McGill University's. We try to make sure that you're up to date on what happens in the world of science. We try to separate facts from fiction, sense from. So ask a question every Sunday morning on the trivia show. And uh, the question that I posed this morning was about a chemical that is widely used in industry because it is required to make aspirin. It is needed to make acetaminophen, that of course is Tylenol. It is also widely used to make the filter. This chemical is uh, searched out by criminal organizations in Mexico, uh, the uh, drug cartels, because they need it. They need to sidetrack it from uh, uh, real channels, from commercial channels into their uh, underground laboratories. And the question was, what is that chemical? That chemical is acetic anhydride. And acetic anhydride is an very, very important industrial product, as you can imagine, because so much aspirin and Tylenol is used around the world, and it is also used to make cellulose acetate, which is needed to make the filters on cigarettes. The uh, chemical, uh, acetic anhydride, uh, it's uh, very simple. Uh, basically, it's two acetic acid units uh, joined together. And this was first synthesized by Charles Romley Alder Wright, who was uh, a chemist at St. Hospital at St. Mary's Hospital in London, England, way back in the 1800s. And he was very interested in uh, opiates, which of course were widely used at that time uh, for pain relief very effectively. Opiates are extracted from opium, which is the juice that exudes from the opium uh, poppy, that time grown mostly in the, um, in the Orient. It was well known that while um, opium was very effective in pain relief um, because of the compound that it contained, that was morphine. But morphine was also highly addictive. And um, Alder Wright focused his research on trying to find some way to reduce the um, uh, tendency of, of morphine to cause addiction, but also to retain its painkilling ability. And very often, the way that that works uh, is by manipulating molecular structure 
hoping to retain the beneficial properties and eliminating the undesired ones. And it was during this research that he cooked up uh, some um, uh, morphine with the acetic anhydride that he had uh, developed and uh, turned out that he made a compound, diacetylmorphine, which was a very effective pain reliever and which he hoped would be less addictive. Unfortunately, it turned out that it was not uh, less addictive. Uh, wasn't known at that time. And uh, the challenge of uh, marketing something that was less uh, addictive was taken up uh, at that time by the Bayer Chemical Company, who had learned about this diacetylmorphine from Wright, and they decided to do some more research into it. And Felix Hoffman, who also, of course, did uh, the work on aspirin, converting uh, salicylic acid extracted from natural sources into acetylsalicylic acid by reacting with acetic anhydride, uh, also studied uh, the reaction of morphine with acetic anhydride, and the Merck company came up with heroin. And they called it heroin because it seemed to sort of have heroic properties. Of course, it turned out that heroin was even more addictive than morphine. And uh, heroin, uh, of course, has been a curse on society ever since that time. Today, uh, opiate addiction kills thousands every year in North America. And that addiction is fed uh, mostly by the importing of uh, heroin from Mexico. The uh, exudate of the poppy, the uh, the juice, the uh, opium, uh, mostly comes from Afghanistan. Uh, however, it is in Mexico that it is converted into heroin in these uh, clandestine laboratories, which are really very unsophisticated, uh, very often set up in 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 the in the jungle because all they need is really a, a source of heat, some very, very simple equipment, which can be just sort of large buckets. They need the opium and they need the acetic anhydride. The acetic anhydride, of course, is controlled by governments because of, of its use in, in these clandestine operations. But the uh, criminal element, the cartels in Mexico, uh, are quite adept at uh, getting their hands on acetic anhydride, uh, often by paying off people, stealing the substance, etc. So today there's increased attention being paid to, to this. But uh, unfortunately, it does get into the hands of, uh, of the criminal element. And it is unfortunately a very simple business to cook up morphine with uh, acetic anhydride and convert it into heroin. And then, of course, it is smuggled into the U.S. where it uh, wreaks havoc with uh, people's lives. So the question here is, did uh, uh, Romley Alder Wright do something wrong with his experiments with uh, morphine? Should he be somehow castigated for this? And the answer is no. He was a legitimate researcher in chemistry, and at that time there was a problem that needed to be solved. The problem was the addictive potential of morphine. And it was a, a, a totally uh, uh, good idea to try to modify its molecular structure. Unfortunately, it turned out that that modification actually led to uh, uh, 
you know, okay, more problems because it made it more addictive. But that could not have been predicted. And um, Alder Wright actually was uh, an excellent uh, teacher by all accounts. He even hold, wrote a book called The Threshold of Science, a variety of simple and amusing experiments that turned uh, uh, children onto science. He, of course, could not possibly have known that his creation of, you know, diacetylmorphine or heroin uh, would have the effect that it eventually uh, did have. So there is a story of uh, acetic anhydride. And those of you who have ever uh, worked with it in the lab, and of course, uh, there's a good chance that many of you did if you took uh, undergraduate organic chemistry, because one of the experiments that we do in the lab is to take salicylic acid and react it with acetic anhydride to convert it into acetosalicylic acid or aspirin. And the uh, smell of acetic anhydride is, is, uh, is quite memorable. Uh, it is pungent to say the least, but of course we use it in the fume hood and uh, we try to prevent uh, inhalation. But it's important for students to learn how to carry out these kind of, uh, of transformations and to use uh, proper equipment. Today, we tend to do this on a, on a micro scale, uh, meaning that we are using very small glass apparatus so that we can use the least uh, uh, material and still have the students learn how to carry out these processes without uh, having to contend with large amounts of, of solvents and uh, also uh, without too much worry about how to dispose of the uh, chemicals that were used. It's much easier to collect small amounts of, of chemicals, which are then taken away by a company that specializes in this, in, in um, remove, removing uh, 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 substances that we no longer need in, in, in the lab. Uh, but uh, I think it is you know, very important to introduce uh, students to these uh, kind of ideas uh, because it, it's different than just looking at something in, in the textbook. When you actually handle these and you see what has to be done in order to increase your yield, how do you know whether or not your final product is pure? Uh, so hands-on experiments are indeed important. Although these days, of course, there are a lot of videos showing these kind of things, but it's still no substitute for uh, hands-on. So now you don't know the story about uh, acetic anhydride and why uh, there is so much talk uh, about how to control its transport to make sure that you know it doesn't get stolen and uh, how it doesn't get into the wrong hands in, in Mexico. So is uh, acetic anhydride good or bad? Of course, the question makes no sense because chemicals are not good or bad. They are just things. They don't make any decisions. People make decisions about how to use them. You can use acetic anhydride to make aspirin or you can use it to make heroin, but it's not the chemical that makes the decision. People make that decision. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I better repeat my questions because I don't have a, a correct answer yet. First one was about bicycle helmets. 
the outer shell, what plastic is it made of? And the inner impact absorbing foam, what material is that made of? Give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text to 514-800. And the second question, which will lead into a fascinating story. In 2020, a man in India murdered his wife using the same weapon that Dr. Grimsby Roylott employed in a classic fictional detective story. What was that weapon? If you know my uh, likes in uh, detective fiction, you'll know what fictional detective we're talking about, and hopefully you will also know which story we're talking about. All right, so a real case of a murder in India using the same weapon that Dr. Grimsby Roylott used fictionally. I had a very interesting question. Uh, I already answered it in our weekly newsletter, for which, of course, you can sign up by going to our website, which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. Uh, and uh, I think many of you may have noticed this effect. The question was, why does plastic stay wet in the dishwasher, whereas glass comes out dry? And it, it, is, it is quite obvious. Uh, when you open your dishwasher, uh, of course, everything usually will be hot because of the drying cycle. Uh, but nevertheless, some of the plastic items that you have in there will still have beads of water on them. Question is, is why? Now, obviously, this is, you know, not a question of great importance, such as the questions we get about vaccines and antiviral drugs, etc. But nevertheless, it is interesting. And um, of course, it, it has to do with the rate at which uh, water evaporates from a surface. Well, obviously, the rate of evaporation depends on the temperature. You know that. You, you uh, put a drop of water on a hot surface, it evaporates very quickly. Uh, on a cold surface, it, it doesn't. Now, in the uh, dishwasher, uh, the temperature, of course, gets quite high. Uh, but the question is how well the materials that have been put into the dishwasher, your dishes, how well do they retain the heat after the heating element is turned off? Well, that, of course, depends on the type of material of which they are made. So here we talk about a phenomenon known as heat capacity, and that's a physical property. And it is the amount of heat that has to be supplied to an object to produce a unit change in, in temperature. Some substances, of course, warm up very quickly, others don't. And this also determines how well a substance retains heat. Well, glass and metal absorb and retain heat longer than plastic. So residual water will evaporate more quickly from glass or from metal because the surface stays hotter and you need heat to evaporate the water. But there's something else that comes into play here. And this is where the science gets more intriguing. We have to introduce another property called surface energy. Well, you will notice that if you place a drop of water on a plastic surface, it forms a bead. While on a glass surface, it spreads out into a thin layer. You can try that. I mean, this is a simple kitchen experiment that you can do. You can just take an eyedropper and put a drop of water on a glass surface or on a plastic surface. And you'll see that on the glass, it spreads out much more than on the plastic. Now, this has to do with the strength with 
with which atoms at the surface of a substance are attracted to the bulk of the substance relative to how strongly they are attracted to the atoms in an adjacent surface. And substances that have a low surface energy show weak bonding of the surface atoms to the bulk of the material. And therefore, they have a greater tendency to be attracted to another surface that approaches. Well, glass has a lower surface energy than plastic. So molecules at its surface will have a greater attraction for water than a plastic surface has for water. And since the rate of evaporation of water is a function of the area in contact with air, a thin layer such as forms on glass will evaporate more readily than a bead that forms on plastic. If you're troubled by wet plastic, the addition of a rinsing agent will help because these products contain chemicals we call surfactants, like alcohol ethoxylates or sodium cumin sulfonate. And these reduce the attraction of water molecules for each other by getting in between the water molecules. This reduction in surface tension means that water is less likely to beat up and therefore it evaporates more readily. Now this, Another issue about putting plastics in your uh, dishwasher, and this is another question that comes up uh, quite frequently, and it's, it's a thorny one, and uh, it's whether or not undesirable chemicals leach out from the plastic. Well, plastics are chemically very complex entities because there are all sorts of additives that are used in their manufacture. Uh, additives that um, act as uh, antioxidants so that uh, you don't get degradation because of oxygen in the air. Uh, you have chemicals that protect it from uh, excessive exposure to ultraviolet light. You have polymerizing agents that speed up the rate at which the molecules join together to make the plastic. So there are all kinds of chemicals. Then there's the added problem of the polymer itself breaking down with heat and releasing some of the breakdown products. In any case, remember that whatever does leach out will end up going down the drain. However, there is the possibility that the heat will have altered the properties of plastic in such a way as to enhance the release of its components into any food subsequently stored inside. In the context of everything to which we are exposed in our daily life, this really is of no great consequence. We are exposed every day to thousands and thousands and thousands of both natural and synthetic substances. The amount that leaches out of plastics is, is, is by comparison inconsequential. Still, you should be using plastics that are deemed to be dishwater safe. And of course it will say so on, on the plastic. The best one actually is polypropylene that's number five on your recycling logo because virtually nothing leaches out of out of that one uh, polyester which is number one and polyethylene which are numbers two and four are also good but there are two types of plastics that should not be placed in the dishwasher polystyrene and polystyrene you recognize because it has the number six uh, recycling logo uh, that should not be used because it can break down to release styrene, which is a problem. And plastics in category number seven. Now, number seven is a category for all plastics that don't fit into the other six categories. And it includes polycarbonate. And polycarbonate can, in theory at least, break down and release bisphenol A. 
which is something that we don't want. So plastic six and seven should not be placed in the uh, in the dishwasher. But of course, they will not be marked as dishwasher safe either. So use only plastics that are uh, are said to be dishwasher safe. Uh, of course, you can always uh, wash your plastics by hand, in which case they are not exposed to the uh, very high temperatures that you can get in uh, in a dishwasher. Um, so anyway, I, I don't think that there's a huge problem with these uh, with these plastics. Uh, but you know, today with the amazing ability that we have to analyze for trace amounts in the environment. Uh, I'm pretty sure that if we analyze the water that comes out of a dishwasher, we would find some remnants of, uh, of plastic products in there. But I don't re really think that these are of any consequence. You are listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check to see the CTV, to see what they have to say on the CTV news, and then we'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science front. Okay, let's hit the lines with Ian, who may have an answer to my question about the unusual murder weapon. Hi, Ian. Rick. Hi, Rick. Hi, it's Rick here. Okay, Rick, go ahead. Okay, Dr. Joe, I, I just read something uh, regarding a woman found dead in India, and then they realized it was actually murder. The husband with a snake killed her with the That's snake. That's it. That's exactly right. <laughs> so when I, I asked the that. question that this was sort of a fictional detective story come alive, do you know which story I was talking about? I don't. I don't. Okay, that's a classic Sherlock Holmes story, uh, The Speckled Band, oh. in which uh, the criminal, Dr. Grimsley Roylott, uh, commits murder by training a snake to bite the victim. I mean, that part of the story is silly because snakes cannot be trained. Uh, in the story, he trains the snake uh, by uh, giving it milk and training it to come to the milk with a whistle. Uh, this is uh, silly because snakes don't hear, and also they do not uh, come to eat milk. <laughs> so, but the true life story is stranger than the fiction, and this took place uh, in 2020 in in India uh, after an, an arranged marriage, uh, whereby a young lady who who had some uh, uh, difficulty, she was a slow learner was married to a gentleman. Uh, this was all arranged, uh, you know, uh, uh, by um, without them ever having met before, the classic arranged marriage. And uh, there was a large dowry, which of course was the motivation for the man to marry this, uh, this lady who had learning difficulties. And the dowry included 720 grams of gold, which is uh, a lot, uh, gold today is something like $75 a gram. So we're talking, uh, you know, over $50,000 there. He was given a, a Suzuki sedan and also $6,700, which is 500,000 rupees in, in cash. Well, uh, everything seemed okay for the uh, first uh, uh, few uh, months. 
but then the uh, the husband uh, actually found it uh, quite difficult to live with the lady, uh, whether it was due to her learning difficulties or something else, you know, isn't clear, but he made plans to do away with her. And he had become infatuated with snakes and uh, especially the poisonous ones. And he decided that this would be the way to get rid of his wife because, of course, in India, snake bites, unfortunately, are, are relatively common. And he thought that, you know, this could be just explained away as the lady having been accidentally uh, bitten by a snake. So he began to hatch a very, very clever plot. And he went out and he purchased a highly poisonous snake called the Russell's Viper. And this is one of the most aggressive and most poisonous snakes that is found in Asia. He paid uh, 10,000 rupees for the snake. That's about $135. And he just left it on the stairs in their home. And he asked his wife to come downstairs for some reason, hoping that the snake would uh, be upset <laughs> when she approached and, and bite her. Well, she actually noticed the snake before... Um, and before anything happened, uh, she screamed and uh, uh, there was no uh, snake bite. She ran back into her room. Uh, the husband captured the snake and he kept it in a plastic bag uh, because he thought that he would try this again in another way. And he did. He mixed a sedative into her food and the lady did fall fast asleep. And when she was sleeping, he took the snake out of the container and uh, held it onto her and had the snake bite her. And then he threw the snake out the window in an attempt to destroy the evidence. Well, it turned out that she woke up because of the excruciating pain that she felt and uh, she was taken to hospital. Uh, there, he claimed that she had been outside uh, when she was bitten, but she, of course, contradicted that. She knew that it wasn't. And, but she did recover, although she was left with some terrible injuries uh, on her legs for which she needed some uh, uh, skin transplants. Anyway, he didn't give up. He decided that he was going to, to do away with her, and he was going to... He thought that a cobra... Uh, would be far more vicious and would uh, uh, easily bite her if brought into contact. So he did buy a, a cobra from a, a snake dealer. And once again, he put some sedative into her uh, food. And while she was asleep, he placed the snake on her. But the snake just coiled around and it did not bite. He waited and waited and still nothing happened. So he finally grabbed the snake by its head and forced its fangs into her arm, very much like when snakes are milked for their uh, venom. And uh, this turned out to be a potentially lethal bite. Uh, of course, she began to experience uh, terrible pain. Uh, she was uh, um, uh basically uh, envenomated, uh, passed out, and uh, died. It was a, a terrible story, and uh, it raised uh, the curiosity of the investigators for several reasons. Uh, first of all, there was no way that the snake could have gotten into the room by itself. Uh, the room was essentially sealed, 
uh, the window was very high. And although cobras can raise themselves, they can only raise themselves to about a third of their length, uh, which was not nearly enough to in any way sneak into, into the room. They also found uh, by taking a careful look at the bites that it looked like the fangs had gone deeper into the skin than would naturally go, meaning that they had been forced. And then they carried out an interesting experiment. They, in fact, accused the husband. He was put on trial and they carried an experiment with a mannequin on a bed and they put the cobra onto this mannequin to show that there was no biting, that there was no aggressiveness. And uh, this implied that the snake somehow had to be irritated or forced in order to commit the, uh, the bite. Anyway, there was a lot of evidence um, uh, gathered and eventually the court found him to be guilty and he uh, got uh, life imprisonment for this uh, rather uh, unusual weapon that he tried, that he used in order to kill his, uh, his wife. The story, as I said, is reminiscent of The Speckled Band, um, which is the Sherlock Holmes story. Although in that story, there's a, let us say, a significant amount of poetic license uh, <laughs> because of the way that Dr. Roylott uh, supposedly trains the snake to, to bite. Uh, obviously, Sherlock Holmes figures out what is, is going on. Uh, several clues. One is that there was a, a bell rope coming down from the ceiling that wasn't attached to any bell, and that the bed in which the victim that was uh, uh, Roylott's stepdaughter slept uh, was anchored to the floor, uh, which, uh, you know, resulted in uh, uh, the idea that she had to sleep without the bed ever being, uh, being moved. And uh, the story was that uh, the snake had been trained to crawl through a ventilation shaft and down the rope and uh, had been lured there or trained by being uh, uh, trained with some milk uh, and the sound of a whistle. And as I said uh, before, this just makes uh, absolutely uh, no sense. But it did make for a very, very clever story. And who would have thought that this is the kind of thing that someone would actually try to uh, recreate in real life? So as we say, truth is somewhat stranger than fiction. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Let's check traffic, see what's out there. I'm... Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. I got an answer to the other question I posed about bicycle helmets and the plastics that are used. The outer shell is usually made of polycarbonate. And that's the hard, hard plastic. And that's the one that I mentioned earlier, uh, you don't put in the dishwasher because of the potential release of tiny amounts of bisphenol A, which is an endocrine disruptor. And the uh, inner foam that you find in the helmet is made of uh, foamed polystyrene. 
So it's basically the same stuff that the foamed coffee cups uh, are made of. All right, so let me replace that uh, question with another one. What beverage did Louis Pasteur improve the keeping qualities of through the process of pasteurization? So what beverage did Louis Pasteur pasteurize? If you know, give us a call, 514-790-0800, text to 514-800, and we have Joe on the line. Hi, how you doing? Hi. I have a question for you. A friend bought a big jar of uh, Kalamata olives, and I think they're sitting in a liquid of uh, olive oil, vinegar, and some kind of spice. He'd like to know how long that jar would last. Oh, that will last a very long time. Olives don't spoil easily. Right. Uh, olives are very high in vitamin E, which is an antioxidant. Mm-hmm. Uh, they contain a number of polyphenols, which also have antioxidant properties, so that will last a very long time. In terms like a year, two years, three? I, I think it will be quite safe for a year, yeah. For, for a year. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Uh, So again, uh, what beverage did Louis Pasteur improve the keeping qualities of through the process of of pasteurization? Uh, Let me uh, uh, talk about something that that came up the other day when uh, I wrote a piece for our newsletter uh, attacking um, uh, an osteopath, an American osteopath, a doctor of osteopathy, uh, by the name of Dr. Carrie Madej, uh, and I attacked her for her attacks on vaccines, which uh, I found to be really quite uh, nonsensical. And uh, I pointed out uh, some of the silly arguments that she uh, that she made, and uh, I also uh, began by just making sure that that people knew what uh, osteopathy was. And I explained that in the United States, osteopaths are doctors who graduate from uh, osteopathic colleges. And uh, these are are very similar to regular medical schools, uh, but they also emphasize physical manipulation in order to treat ailments. And I made a mention that uh, uh, once you graduate from uh, uh, College of Osteopathy in the United States, graduates can qualify to enter exactly the same residency programs as medical school graduates, and they go on to pursue training in various specialties. And uh, I also pointed out that, however, students who enroll in uh, osteopathy have, in general, lower grades than medical students and usually end up there because they did not get into medical school. So I thought that that was just a you know an important point of information because there's a lot of confusion about this, especially here in Canada, where osteopaths are not medical doctors. In the United States, as I said, they are. They have some differences in the fundamental training, but they go into the same residency programs and they practice exactly the same way as medical school graduates. They go into emergency, they, they go into endocrinology, whatever they choose, if they can qualify for those uh, programs. In Canada, that is not the case. We don't have osteopathic physicians here. But you can get a certificate in osteopathy by following some evening course. Uh, And it just teaches you some manipulative techniques, which may be of some benefit, uh, you know, uh, in uh, uh, certain musculoskeletal uh, problems. But these are not physicians. But in the U.S., they are physicians. And the reason that I, I, I mentioned that is because it is 
often particularly irritating when someone who has a background in science goes astray. You know, we're we're quite familiar uh, these days with with uh, you know people who have very questionable scientific backgrounds spouting all kinds of. But they are in for physician, an osteopathic physician. Uh, then, of course, it it becomes more serious because these people have a, a a higher pedestal on which to stand because they have that medical degree uh, boosting them, and. Some of the the comments that she makes are are just absolutely absurd, uh, such as you know uh, vaccines contain all kinds of toxins, and you can wash out toxins from your body by taking a bath in sodium bicarbonate, uh, borax, and and baking soda. Uh, so anyway, I started to look into this uh, lady, Dr. Madej, uh, in somewhat more detail, and I looked up her ratings you know, on these websites where you rate your, uh, where uh, patients rate their doctors. And I tell you, I've never seen such spectacular accolades. There was not one single negative entry. Now, this is truly unique. I have never seen that. I've never seen that with any other kind of ratings. You know, we don't see that in our academic ratings. You know, our students rate us and uh, they put in their comments and they, they rate us, you know, on a scale of one to five. And uh, no matter who you are, you get some negative comments. You know, I've certainly gotten some negative comments. And you look at uh, physicians' ratings. Uh, you even with the the best known physicians, you, you they still get some negative comments. But in the case of Dr. Madej, not one negative comment, and that of course raises a flag, uh, red flag, <laughs> especially when you look at all of those comments, and every one is by an anonymous contributor. Uh, so, of course, it's it's hard to know exactly what is going on there, but it seems to be that there's some sort of, of monkey business in, in, in uh, who is actually submitting those, uh, those comments. Uh, but this is not the only uh, problem uh, with the kind of things that she says. Uh, the whole problem is, is her claim that you need to detoxify if somehow you have been forced to... Uh, take the vaccine because, quote, the vaccine contains RNA-modifying transhumanism nanotechnology. Well, this, of course, is just a meaningless word salad. And then she dresses this up by saying that the people pushing these injections want to change what it is to be human. How do they want to do this? Because the vaccines contain liquefied computing systems, whatever that means. And uh, then... Uh, in an argument that really takes the cake, she says she has looked through a microscope and she's not a trained microscopist. She's not a virologist, you know, uh, so don't know what is, is quite going on there. But she says that she sees a deadly parasite, a jellyfish-like tiny invertebrate called Hydra vulgaris. And this can, quote, multiply and form independent neural networks inside those who received COVID-19 vaccines and could ultimately influence their thoughts and actions. Uh, this is, is, is just absurd. There's nothing like that hidden in a vaccine. So here is someone with a scientific background, a medical background, who promotes absolute nonsense. So I think she deserves to be castigated, but I did not 
suggest that her nonsense uh, comes about by being trained as an osteopath instead of a medical doctor. Because as you know, I have on many occasions castigated uh, some medical doctors for the silliness that they, they promote. So uh, Dr. Madej does deserve uh, criticism, but the nonsense that she spouts doesn't stem from her having been trained as an osteopath. It comes to her independently. Anyway, that is it. We have once again run out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>